Welcome to Midweek Liberty. I'm Jay Dillon Proctor. And I'm Anthony Alegria. And today we're going to be talking about corrupted language again and some of the modern problems that have come from this, this issue of corrupted language. We're going to discuss moral architectures and how that relates to the, the season of Advent. But the big word for today is sophistry. And so, Anthony, would you give us a definition of sophistry? According to Merriam-Webster, for people that are learning the English language, sophistry is a reason or argument that sounds correct but is actually false. All right, so this is an important concept. It's something which sounds correct. In other words, the language which has been used to convey an argument makes it sound correct, but it's actually something which is false. It's a, a logical fallacy. And if you're listening to the podcast, sophistry is spelled S O P H. I-S-T-R-Y. If you would like to spend some time looking up what sophistry is, learn this concept because it is something which is permeating throughout our culture and causing a lot of destruction. And we, we need to reel back in our culture. And one of the ways we're going to do that is we're going to, to beat back the sophistry which is damaging us all. And again, not to over-dramatize that, but it is something which is it's a big problem because it, it corrupts how we can think about things. So before we go any further, I want to say a big thank you to one of our viewers who has recently supported our, our program by giving us some new tech. It's greatly appreciated, and it's helping us out tremendously, and we just really appreciate that. You know who you are, and you've been a great blessing to us, and we hope that we can return that in some, some manner. All right, so to change gears a little bit, we're going to talk about something which is a little bit of a fun story, but it's also still language-centered. And this is actually from Merriam-Webster. If you go to the, the dictionary's website, they actually have a few articles they put on there themselves, and one of them is about words that they are watching. Words that are that are play in our society. And the word that they have on here today is the word Padawan. And for those who are Star Wars fans, you will recognize this word. And of course, the reason why they are watching this word is because there are companies out in our world who are replacing the language of intern with the new language of Padawan. And this is something which is interesting in and of itself because when we think of intern, we, we think of people who are coming into a professional field. This is sort of the, the entry level of, of a professional career. But at the same time, there is a lot of stigma with that word, and people, they don't want to address the stigma, so they've kind of changed the, the language a little bit to avoid that. That's what we're going to be talking about here shortly, because there's problems when you, you don't want to deal with the stigma, you don't want to deal with the issues, and you just decide to change the language to sort of soften things. There's problems there. But the reason that we've seen the word Padawan come come about is that, in particularly in technical fields and and more geeky fields, uh, they're trying to use this language to describe um, and use the exact language that's here on Merriam-Webster. It is special young people with specialized skills. So that's that's pretty basic, pretty self-explanatory. But of course, this is something we see happening here in in a few few different industries where people are moving away from the word intern. But of course, in our modern world, there are issues with with internships, especially in entertainment, in the entertainment industry or any industry where there is a a larger supply of people wanting to be in that field than there are jobs in that field. A lot of times people get taken advantage of. Where I went to college here in Nashville, there are a lot of people who came from all over the country. They wanted to to make it in in the music business. They wanted to make it in in the world of country music. And there are a lot of people who took advantage of them in this. And there was a lot of unpaid interns that really were, were taken advantage of in this. And of course, all the stuff that's come out recently in Hollywood. There's a, an issue with, with how we value people. But again, I don't think the solution is just to, to modify language. Okay, so to move to a more serious topic, let's talk a little bit about sophistry. Uh, so something that's recently happened here in our culture is net neutrality 
has been repealed. This this whole big issue that's been going around. If you've been watching television anytime recently, you've seen these news articles which are, are very much conveyed with a little bit of, of hysteria. There's been a lot of emotions around this. But the term net neutrality in and of itself, very few people even understand what it is. However, they hear this word net, of course they think internet and they hear neutrality. This sounds like freedom. This sounds like something which is open and free. But again, net neutrality in and of itself is is an example of sophistry. It sounds like it means something, when in reality it means something quite different. So I'm just going to ask Anthony, do you know anything about net neutrality? I do not know very much at all about net neutrality. Yeah, it, it sounds like it means internet freedom, but what it actually means is government regulation of the internet. Treating the, the internet as if it's a, a, a fixed utility. Um, which is important, the fact that it's a, they want to treat it as a fixed utility, as one that is still developing, one that is still growing. Um, there are a lot of news programs, especially here in the Nashville area that I've seen, running segments telling people how to prepare for the, they, they'll slightly stick in, in words like possible changes or things that may happen. Um, net neutrality, as, as we understand it, which is really not something which has totally gone into, it, it's only two years old. It's not something which has really been a defining factor in the history of the internet, especially not the international history of the internet. The, the internet is, is much older than two years. We were all doing things on the internet with our computers more than two years ago, so this is something which is very new, but yet people are reacting in hysteria as if things are, are changing when, when they really aren't. And this is a great example where sophistry has come in to rule the day, because if you can call government regulation of the internet if you can call it net neutrality, then it sounds something like internet freedom. And who is who is against freedom? Of course, if you can change the language, you can make people be opposed to or interested in almost anything without people spending a lot of time critical thinking about things, especially when the, the topics are so complicated. And, and net neutrality is a, a complicated thing. Internet regulation is a complicated thing. Recognizing that the internet is not just a luxury, but is now something necessary for people is a complicated thing because people have such widely different experiences with the internet. For a lot of people who are in inside Nashville, you may have a lot of choices in the internet. You get out in the rural area, people will will get in the mail these flyers and things for, for satellite internet, and you can of course use your cell phone. Functionally they're they're almost completely terrible. They have gotten better throughout the years, but but it's not great. And then when you may be able to get cable or DSL the companies, they don't necessarily have great relationships with their customers and you really don't have a lot of choices. So this this pretend that there is an actual free market in the internet is kind of true, but it's also functionally not really true because if you're out in the, the country, you really don't have choices. You don't have comparable churches, uh, choices that are that are functionally the same. And so my, my solution is we need to get towards a an actual free internet where there are free choices where companies have incentives to build a continually growing field as opposed to to everything being treated as a fixed utility that this is how the internet is and it needs to be regulated as this because then there's no no longer any incentives for for companies to to build faster internet where i live internet's not terribly fast where our our church building is located internet's ter not terribly fast um and it, it just becomes a, a problem nonetheless net neutrality is soft language that is purposely designed to manipulate the conversation it enables people to be hysterical about it, and we need to call people on this because how we reel our culture back away from the edge of chaos is we do not concede language that moves away from truth. We must embrace truth. When people ask you to choose between soft language or the truth, choose truth. Well, we'll be back here in a moment, and we're going to talk a bit more about corrupted language and how that 
has been something which has even trickled into the church. And then after that segment, we're going to come back and talk about Advent. We're going to talk about the, the message Zechariah gives in Luke chapter 1. It's a bit of a prophecy, but it's something which is really interesting to the, to the discussion of moral architectures. So we'll be back here in a moment. All right, we're going to talk about corrupted language. A few weeks ago, we, we had a, another conversation on corrupted language, and we're going to revisit that again because this is such an important issue in today's culture. As we look throughout the West, many of the issues that we're, we're having culturally can all be traced back to, to language-based beginnings. People have tried to redefine things. They've, they've wanted to, to set the parameters of the arguments in our world by setting the language a certain way. You can manipulate the way people think by manipulating the language they use to think, and this is something which is such a, a big deal. Language is a medium, and I've, I've articulated that a lot of times in the past, but it's a very important medium. It's one of the, the most prominent mediums that our minds use to, to think about the world. Our entire consciousness is, is, is wrapped up in this important medium of language. So if people can affect language, if they can invest greatly in language, then they can invest in something which really affects how people think. However, reality in and of itself is not entirely consumed by language. People can indulge in things like sophistry, which Anthony read from earlier, and he will be reading a definition of here in a moment again. People can, can make arguments. They can say things that sound true but actually aren't. And this is a big problem in our modern world. We see this all, all across our world, and, and our news media is just eat alive with it. And they've been eat alive with it for a long time. But it's really come into to light here recently as things like the Internet have allowed alternative media to rise and challenge them. And even people have greater access to information and people have greater access to communication and people no longer have to take everything they hear from, for granted. So let's talk a little bit about how language has been corrupted and it, it's such a great tragedy in our world. And if we are going to win back our culture, if we're going to pull our culture away from the edge of chaos, we're going to have to push back on the abuses of language which have been happening in our world. We must not concede language. When people want us to use soft language instead of talking about the truth, always choose the truth. There's this myth that if you can just use soft language that everybody will be happy and they'll be appeased and it'll be great. This is a myth. This is how people who have uh, ambitions of, of shaping culture take charge. This is how people take the, the death by a thousand cuts approach to, to controlling our culture. We cannot concede language. We, we cannot concede truth for, the, for, in return, having this sort of soft appeasement. This is something which has even affected the church, which really bothers me. Even as a, a young man and as a teenager, I've seen it starting to trickle in the church when the language of Sunday school was being replaced by the language of small groups. It really bothers me that whenever people talk about small groups, they can't use articles for some reason. They can't say we're going to the small group or a small group. It's always we're going to small group. Um, just the soft and weak language around that conveys such a, a, a weak and, and miserable ethos that it, it just it, it chaps me in and of itself. But not only that, but it also removes the, the educational emphasis. Replacing the word school with the, the word group removes the the connection to to education, naturally. I mean, it just does. And especially if you look at all the many 
Protestant denominations we have here in the West, the definition of what a small group can range from something as simple as any opportunity where one person may disciple another person. Something that's really vague, or it can be something more specific that is a, a setting where you have one teacher over, over a group. It could be so many things. It's just all across the board. It's, it's rather, well, just the architecture of it is, is rather poor. It's inconsistent. And even moving the, the word Sunday to the word small takes a, a step and says, we're going to use something softer. We're not going to use the language of, of Sunday because we want to, to soften it a little bit. And yes, I get that we can have education on more times of the week than just Sunday, but there is something about using the language of Sunday which connects it with the, the long-standing tradition that we worship on Sunday. And yes, I realize there's, there's a reason why we do that, and the church is not always met on Sunday, and there's, there's times and things, and if we go back to the, the Sabbath, it's, it's a little bit different. Yes, I realize there's a history behind that. However, there's still a long-standing history that in the West we connect uh, worship with, with Sunday. And... And I can't help but, when I hear the language of small groups, see that this is a, a softening of, of Christian education. It's a, a lowering the bar from something which is rigorous and meaningful to something which is rather petty. Another bigger, well, a, a much larger uh, corruption that's happened in the church is the overuse of the language of pastors and, and ministers. These terms, they mean something specific when we, we call people pastor, we call someone a minister, that is supposed to imply that they have some sort of role where they are a a person of the cloth who is going out and doing some sort of pastoral care. They're offering a service in the kingdom of God. However, it's come to to be applied to people who are much more suited by the term director. Or they're they're perhaps some sort of leader of something and there's there's more appropriate languages for this, but we've we've watered down the language of pastor and just applied it to anyone. And this is something which which really really bothers me, especially when we get into the issue of worship. And I, I'm not here to to beat up on the, the modern forms of Christian worship, but if you go around and ask many people who are worship pastors, what does worship even mean, you're very likely to get a wide range of things. And again, it, it's something where it's not very consistent, it's not terribly coherent, and it's just all over the place. And it's a big deal because emotional things and aesthetics things can really manipulate people. They can influence how people think. They can, can shape our consciousness which is why we as people, we need to use clear language and we need to always be connected to the truth. We need to be connected to language which conveys a, a strong and a, a well-built architecture. We need to be connected to, to the language of truth, the language of, of, of moral integrity. These are the things where we need to be pushing our culture and not just conceding moral architecture on the, the grounds of soft language because that's really what's been happening. Language is important, but we should never overinvest in it. And you might ask, why in the world would the the preacher man who is who is coming through the speakers be talking about how we have to battle sophistry by using quality language, go on to make the the follow up statement of we can't overinvest in language. The thing is, is that language is a medium at the end of the day, and we must balance our investment of language with our investment in truth. In other words, our actual functioning understanding of the world must be balanced with the language that we, we use it. Because people who overinvest in language, they're investing in usually a narrative or a fantasy that may have little to no connection to reality at all. We must balance our language with reality. And this is what is so important. We cannot overinvest in language to the point that we forget to invest in reality. The people who are corrupting language are doing so so that they can pilot an, a fantasy and they can then avoid reality. 
They're choosing to pilot a narrative in this fantasy view they have of the world so they can avoid reality. And this is how we're going to fix our culture. We are going to have grace for people who have corrupted language and people who have been affected by corrupt language. We must have grace for them. God had unconditional grace for, for us, therefore we must have unconditional grace for others. However, this does not mean, mean that we concede to, to the demands of the, the politically correct language. When people ask us to choose soft language and, and to avoid truth, do not do this. We must say, no, we are going to use language of truth and of moral integrity. Come and join us. We will have grace for you and we will have forgiveness for you, but we're not conceding language and we are going to align ourselves with truth. When the world makes you choose between softies and the truth, choose truth. And on that, we'll be back here in a moment. Okay, and for our final segment today, we're going to be talking about moral structures. Moral structures need to be coherent. In the past, we've talked a bit how in a world where people are increasingly identifying as agnostic and atheist, or maybe they don't identify as anything at all, again, all of this narrative identity-based emphasis, we would expect people to, to have given up on religion, but this has not really been the case. People have found the most absurd and bizarre things in the world to be religious about. They, they found very tacky things in the world to be religious about, and they're doing it in very incoherent and, and just bizarre ways. But we, as, as people of critical thinking, we as the church, we must be people who have strong and, and very high-quality moral architecture in our life. We must teach quality moral architecture to the world. In order for us to do this, we must invest in it ourselves. We must, we must study, we must learn, we must value things which, which give us great moral architecture. So in the past, as we, we look at the, the history of the West and we realize that there's something which happened in, in Europe and in the world after the, the events of the New Testament came to light, there's something happened where the Christian moral architecture enabled the world to find prosperity in a way that it wasn't able to find in the past. Again, our world is by no means perfect now, but compared to other things which have gone on in history, we, we have things quite luxurious, um, even if we speak relatively. People are behaving religiously about the most bizarre and tacky things in our world. Sophistry has led a lot of people to this point, and people no longer have these coherent moral architecture, a, a coherent moral architecture up under them to, to help them produce something meaningful in life. So before we go any further, I'm going to ask Anthony to go back to the definition we looked at earlier from Merriam-Webster on sophistry. And Anthony, would you read that for us again? The use of reasoning or arguments that sound correct but are actually false. And this is from Merriam-Webster. It's their definition for people who are learning English. And it's, it's a very good uh, definition. By, by the standard of Occam's razor, it's, it's simple, it's direct, and it's true. It's a very reliable and quality definition. So in this Advent season, I want us to talk about sophistry and how we, we beat sophistry. And I want us to look to the Gospel of Luke and see what it tells us about moral architecture. But not only the, in the 
Gospel of Luke do we see conversation about this. In the past, we looked at G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, and he talks a lot about roaming virtues and this idea that there's this corruption which happens when the, the structure of the church falls, vices are let loose, and people indulge in sin. But the more damaging things happens when, when people just pick and choose the virtues. They like truth. They like charity. They may like one, but they don't like the other, and all sorts of chaos can happen. Um, before we read Luke, I'm going to ask Anthony, why do you think it is that Chesterton's work on roaming virtues is still so relevant today? Why do you think that one has lasted? Well, I think that uh, it'll be relevant for just about any time period, but especially in recent decades with the rebellion against so-called establishments, it's especially relevant. And, um, you know, I think you can see it in just about anything, especially in, like, for instance, the roaming virtue of sympathy or empathy for other people in the use of language, which is the origin for the, the reason why people actually invest in this soft language. Yeah. You know, so, and that that is the result of a roaming virtue. Most people don't engage in soft language with the intent to manipulate people, but they've been manipulated and, you know, with the, uh, I guess you could say, a catalyst of a roaming virtue like empathy, you know, it can expedite the process. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is, is people can use roaming virtues, and I'm glad you brought up the language of catalyst, because they use the virtue as the catalyst for something terrible. You can, you can be doing something awful, and you can, you can paint it with this virtue, and, well, who wants to question a virtue? And so something awful gets passed. And again, something like net neutrality, they paint it with this word neutrality, and it sounds like freedom. It sounds like peace. You know, these, these are good things. These are, these are nice virtues to, to think about. But there's actually um, some obfuscation going on because what they're really wanting is government control. I think it's so interesting. People get on. There was a college professor who was on a, a news uh, segment here recently in the Nashville area who who was making this sort of snide comment. You want to trust these people to? You want to trust companies, Verizon, and she she listed off the things to 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 give you internet. Would you trust them to supply you with water? And my response to that is, and you want you want to trust the government? Again, I'm not a conspiratorial type person, but at the same time, I recognize that the government's not the most efficient in a lot of things. The government is not the actual one who is producing these things. They're, they're a third party to all of this. Um, anyone who knows anything about bureaucracy knows that bureaucracy is not terribly efficient. And I have family members, I have parishioners who work for the government. And people generally realize it's not a terribly efficient thing. And it's, it's by no stretch of the imagination is it is it free of, of moral corruption. In fact, it's it's pretty much a cesspool of moral corruption. A lot of times government agencies are. So why in the devil we would ever think that, that they're going to be a better arbitrator of that is, is beyond me. Well, anyways, let's get into the, to the Gospel of Luke, and let's, let's talk a little bit of, of New Testament, and let's talk a little bit of Advent. So what I want us to do is I want us to read this message that Zechariah says, quick recap of Zechariah. Zechariah is a, a priest who has no children. He has a wife. Elizabeth, they have no children, and they're, they have nothing to really pass on. They, they get this message from God that says, you're going to have a child. He's going to do magnificent things. Of course, there's going to be John the Baptist. And it's very much reflective of Abraham and Sarah, the people who God first set aside against. The first time God set people aside with Abraham and Sarah said, I'm going to bless you. You'll bless others. The whole earth is going to be blessed. It's sort of the beginning of the, the history of the people of God as a set-apart people. Zechariah and Elizabeth reflect that. Um, so I want us to read this out of Luke chapter 1, 
And I want you to notice how many virtues are listed here in the Gospel of Luke. And the reason why I want us to, to recognize this is because we really can't separate these virtues apart from one another. It's so important that they, they stay connected with one another. So I'm going to begin right in Luke chapter 1, verse 67, and I want you to, to again, listen to all the virtues that are in here. There are more than we can really um, name in just a few moments. I'm going to come back and iterate a few, but let me just read through this. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of presence. All right, into the way of peace, excuse me. Anthony, there are a lot of virtues here. Do we think that these virtues can can exist independently? Mm. Can you separate them out? Yeah, I would say so. You would say so? Yeah. All right. Well, let me read a few of them, and then we'll come back to that. Today, we, we read chapter one, and if you want to go look up these for yourself, there's more virtues than I'm going to be able to mention. It was verse 67 through 80, roughly, that we just read. And really 67 through, through 79, but let me read some of these virtues. Blessing, visiting and redeeming, which of course is the, the language of, of justice and righteousness. Salvation, speaking a holy message. Mercy, grace, remembering a covenant, which by the way, this is keeping promises without a third party to, to come in and be the arbitrator. It's preparation, giving knowledge, forgiveness, illuminating. Guidance into peace. In this, we also see the notion of unqualified and unmodified justice. For those who, who like to involve themselves in things such as racing, there's a big difference between a stock car and a modified car, and a lot of times modified vehicles, or well, almost always modified vehicles, tend to be unreliable. Um, not that I'm against that. If a quality person can do it, you can you can kind of get away from that, but a lot of times they're, they're not very good as road cars anymore. Um, stock justice is something which is always best. Uh, justice does not need to be qualified, nor does it need to be modified. Modified and qualified justice is, is inherently corrupt. People, again, use the soft language of, of adding qualifiers and modifiers to the language of justice because they're not actually interested in justice. They're interested in a twisted form of justice that they're after. So again, when we look at these, something like blessing... Can you really bless people if you're not willing to actually visit them and bring correct justice and righteousness to them? Can you bless them without wanting to have justice for them? Can you forgive people without illuminating the, the actual problems at hand? Can you guide people into peace if you are separated out from the, the truth of how one approaches peace? 
Can we really separate out all of these virtues and say, I'm going to do blessing, which of course is the idea of giving life, but I really don't like the idea of, of grace. So how in the world could you ever give life to people if you're not going to be gracious with people? Um, yeah, I agree with you mostly there. It's just that like, maybe like all of them, you definitely couldn't separate all of them. But like, I could see where you could separate mercy and knowledge. Yeah. Potentially. Hmm? So that's the thing is, is as we have this conversation, a lot of times our, our first instinct is yes, we can separate them out. The traditional moral structure that comes from Christianity says we need a balance of all of them. Yeah, I agree with you. You can't just, which I don't know um, exactly what Anthony's thinking is. We don't we don't script everything before we, we do these programs. But, yeah, I think you can distinguish them to talk about them. But if you decide that you only want one and don't have them balanced with others, I think that's where you, you get a, a corrupted architecture. Oh, yeah. And and really the point I would like to make from, from what Zachariah's message is, and again, he's talking about his, his child, which is sort of a, a miracle baby, is that there is something about all of these virtues which come together as a package. You can't say we like forgiveness, but we don't like knowledge. Um, we like to be prepared, but we don't like to have a plan, which, again, that makes no sense. Preparing for, for peace, making a way for peace, but not actually... Um, it just, they all start to fall apart if you just pick and choose them. There is a, a reason that, that the, the Christian moral structure has been this understanding that, that we balance the, the virtues in our life. Um, and even having the ability to speak well, this is a virtue, but again, we must balance it with reality. We get a lot of people in our world who want to do balance the art of speaking, but they don't want to balance that with reality. They want to balance that with their fantasy, their, their narrative, and that, that turns into sophistry, which is very, very bad. Um, so my challenge for you is, as a pastor is, is spend some time in Luke um, chapter 1. It's not a, a very common thing that you might find if you're, you're not in heavily involved in, in church life, if you're not somebody who, who attends regularly. You may not hear a lot about this in the Christmas season. It's sort of a one of the side plots to, to the coming of Christ. But nonetheless, it's not one that can be discarded. It, it's part of this moral architecture that God came to, to Zachariah and Elizabeth, these, these couple who seemed to be without blessing, and God worked in their lives, and it began with individuals. It began with, with people who had individual transformation, and that's where the, the new era under Christ really begins. So I challenge you, go and check out the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. You'll find it in, the, in Luke. Um, if you go there and you start looking at the nativity, you'll hear this story. It's a very good story. It's very, very powerful to see how God begins by working with, with individuals. It, it doesn't start with, with politicians far off, but it starts with two people whose life comes together. Their life is personally improved, and that's where, where things really start moving. So final thoughts. Be somebody who, who looks to balance virtue in your life. Spend some time thinking about virtue. Teach your kids virtue if you have children. Um, don't teach them that, that charity is the responsibility of other people. Teach them that they should be responsible for charity. Don't, don't just say we, we need to put policies in power that, that are charitable because that's not really charity. Government compulsion is not charity. We as individuals, as the church, we are to be involved in, in this, and it's a voluntary thing. We ourselves need to be voluntarily involved in this. Again, even if you look at this message with Zechariah, the whole idea of remembering covenant is that God voluntarily remembered the covenant with his people. He didn't have some third party come in and, and arbitrate it for him. We as, our, as individuals, we must balance the virtues in our life. I know as Protestants have had this issue where they have, have picked in and, choo and chosen a few of them, we need to get back to balanced virtues. 
this is how we're going to, to bring our, our culture back to a, a cohesive state. We're not going to, to parse out the virtues, but we're going to put them all together. We're going to be critical thinkers. We're going to do something honorable. We're not going to give in to the softies, but instead we're going to be people who orient ourselves towards truth. When other people want us to give in to their demands, tell them no. So we're going to orient ourselves towards truth and come and join us. We have the unconditional grace that God has offered to us. We extend that to others. Say, come and join us. We're going to have the kingdom of God in our lives, all of us together. Come and join us in truth. And on that, I hope you enjoyed our program. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please follow us on Facebook. You can follow me also on Twitter at J. Dylan Proctor. And again, if you want to support us, the best thing you can do is just share our content. That will help us tremendously. And, and again, big thanks to the to those who had, who had given us the, the new tech we have here. It's greatly appreciated. And on that, have a blessed day. Thank you.